Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The coronavirus pandemic continues to charge on, killing nearly 673,000 Americans and some 4.7 million worldwide. Just on a note, by the time we convene again next week, COVID will have killed more Americans than the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919. Joining us as they do every week to discuss the week on world markets that this week include um, more Boeing related news. Uh, Obviously, uh, one of the biggest stories uh, of this young uh, decade, uh, the deal uh, among the United States, Great Britain and Australia to furnish Canberra with nuclear attack submarines and the cancellation of what is one of France's largest ever defense contracts uh, and how it was done, keeping Paris in dark, uh, enraging uh, the French uh, key takeaways from the DSEI show uh, last week, as well as what to expect from the Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber conference and trade show. Joining us are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy. Guys, welcome back to the program. Uh, it's great to be here, Bago. Wouldn't be a weekend without it. It is great to be here. It's been an astonishing week already, Vargo. Thanks. Yes. As always, highlight of the week, Vargo. Thank you. Uh, thanks very, very much, guys. And uh, Sash, I know what you mean. Um, if, if I, I, I as, as everybody on the show knows, I love submarines, uh, love the Pacific. And uh, boy, I got to tell you, even I was almost fork tender at the end of some of these uh, uh, conversations uh, last week. And obviously, we're going to continue talking about it. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri, Marinette Marine sponsors uh, our naval coverage and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of uh, strategy. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off uh, as we kind of go around the horn. And what did you guys hear over the course of the week? Uh, That was interesting. Uh, As long as it doesn't involve the word Australia submarine or DSCI, we're going to get to that later in the program, but sort of more what some of the commercial movers on the market were. Um, Obviously, coronavirus uh, fatalities uh, sadly continue. You know, in this last week, uh, we uh, shared uh, and a number of people were sharing painful stories about how people were going to dozens of hospitals uh, that could not admit them because emergency rooms and intensive care facilities uh, were full. And unfortunately, people were passing away. Ron, start start us off on what were some of the bigger market movers uh, over what was, uh, you know, still still a pretty tough week as Congress debates this obviously $3.5 trillion uh, measure that Democrats see as a signature piece of legislation that they want to pass. Yeah, oh, sure. and 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 right, markup was going on uh, as well uh, on the on the House side, and obviously next week we're going to have uh, floor votes. So anyway, what, whatever it was that was moving markets. Yeah, so you know, you look at the the A and D space, you know, in in focus. Um, you know, broadly, commercial aero did uh, better than than defense. Um, you know, the large defense contractors were off maybe a percent, a little bit more. Um, Boeing was up about a percent and a half and Raytheon Technologies was kind of split the difference um, right down the middle. Um, yeah, the S&P on the week was off by maybe half a percent. So it was, you know, the, there might've been some volatility during the week, but the actual um, week to week stock movement was, was, was not so much. Um, I think investors were talking about a couple of things. Um, one, I think there's a recognition now that, and you've seen this more in the press that 
know, the go back to work environment might be a little bit different than what people were thinking. Business travel seems like the expectations around it picking up broadly have gotten pushed out some. And you know, we saw an impact uh, on the airlines uh, from the from the Delta variant. Um, and then maybe there's also mixed up in there because it's hard to really ferret out the causality. Um, you know, there's some of the seasonality that goes on with the airlines anyway. Right. Um, and, and I think that what was most interesting, and I'll, I'll violate one of the ground rules you set up up front, was I will say submarine in Australia in, in the same <laughs> sentence. Um, I got a lot of calls from investors because, you know, that news broke and the defense stocks really didn't react to it at all. Um, and I think that had people just kind of scratching their heads for, for a number of different reasons, right? Because um, one, you might think there's, you know, some impact on the U.S. players. But two, it also kind of points to just sort of a maybe in, in some ways a more troubled world, um, so on and so forth. But yeah, the defense stocks didn't really react to it at all. So um, that was probably what closed the week. And you know, I think was on investors' minds was like, hmm, what's this all mean? And why, why isn't the market reacting to it? And um, anything on markup or the $3.5 trillion plan? Um, obviously, Democrats are trying to find a way forward. A lot of conversation on uh, different sorts of tax plans. I think there are a wide variety of proposals uh, that are uh, out there. Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, has already said, hey, um, you know, again, another warning on approaching a, a debt ceiling. Uh, Republicans saying that they're not going to extend the debt ceiling. I remember you and I having these conversations on a regular basis uh, at the time where Wall Street was like, no, they won't default on the debt. And then it, it, there was a panic up on the street. And in fact, the market responded, which is the only reason we had the Budget Control Act, right? I mean, Republicans were perfectly happy to default. And that's a message that they're transmitting this time. Are any of these factors, uh, you know, on investors' minds or are yeah, folks going to focus on that when yeah, it it's a happens? Good, it's a good question. So I'd say when you look at what's going on in DC broadly, um, there's always a focus on uh, on tax policy and tax laws and you know, you know what's you know what corporate taxes are going to be and so on and so forth. So one thing investors have been focusing on for sure is taxes. And then I'd say a second thing, and you're, and you're starting to see this. Um, the last time and and you know the, the last several times it's come up where there's been a debate around the debt ceiling. Um, the defense stocks have actually underperformed in that environment. And you've, if you look at the defense stocks over the last couple of weeks. Compared to the broader market, they've been a little punky, um, and you've seen uh, you know the rhetoric around the, the debt ceiling pickup. Um, and my guess is that that those aren't independent events. Um, how that said, however, I haven't gotten a lot of questions from investors on it. But if you look at historical performance, when there's a lot of discussion around debt ceiling and debt ceiling debate, um, the defense stocks tend to get a little weaker into that. Uh, that's uh, certainly going to be interesting to watch because obviously the United States has managed not uh, to default uh, on its debt. Uh, one of the reasons why we are uh, considered a sterling bet, no pun intended, uh, Sash didn't want to uh, work uh, your side of the street on that. Um, yeah, Sash, say considerate. Yes, uh, <laughs> at least I could do. Um, so what were some of the drivers uh, on, on, on your end, right? Aside, uh, aside from obviously the word submarine or DSCI, uh, because um, Europe continue, you know, vaccination rates are improving, which is which is really great. But there are also a whole bunch of underlying economic questions uh, that investors have been trying to bear in mind, uh, and some European Central Bank maneuvers, right? I mean, what are what are some of the drivers uh, that your clients were talking about and you were talking to uh, over the course of the week? 
Well, listen, I mean, again, taking advantage of the um, uh, of, of, of Ron being able to slip slip this one in very quickly. <laughs> we we also had a hell of a lot of questions about, you know, the, the you know what's being bought by you know who. Um, and two European stocks ended the week very, very strongly, BA Systems and Rolls-Royce. We'll come back to that later on. But that that was a, you know, that was a real standout on uh, on Friday of last week as you know, as the news broke and reverberated uh, around Europe. I think otherwise, um, in, in terms of civil aerospace, the stocks are marking time. I mean, you know, you, you get weekly volatility, but really there's been remarkably little movement in most of these stocks. Airbus is somewhere between 112 and 115 euros, and it's been that for the last couple of weeks plus. Um, Safran is slipping a little bit, MTU's slipping a little bit, those two being the other the other major civil aerospace stocks in, in Europe. But, you know, looking at the, the airline traffic, China was up last week, US and Europe were down. Um, China is now so big that actually it is driving the global stats. Um, but, uh, you know, what we're seeing is we're, we're into the shoulder season uh, and in some territories, actually we're now through, through the shoulder season. And there's just starting to be a realisation that um, Q3 is going to end you know, dull and Q4 is going to be re- is really hard to forecast. We've talked to a couple of companies about um, specifically about uh, civil spare parts and um, maintenance, repair, and overhaul volumes going into Q4. And really respected large companies are saying to us, I mean, you know, off the record, we haven't got a clue. They have got really little visibility, and the the variance uh, or the the uncertainty is about ten percent of volumes in Q4. That's that's fascinating um, because that that's the difference between a, a perfectly good year and a really Pretty lousy year, so um, there's everything. You know, there's everything to go for in the next sort of eight, ten weeks or so. And I, you know, I can pretty much hear the sound of nails being bitten by some of these big uh, MRO uh, operators. You know, anybody with exposure to spare parts and overhauls at the moment is, uh, you know, looking at their boards and trying to work out what's going to fill in those blocks and at what price and at what um, sort of scale, uh, you know, scale of overhaul. Um, uh, for, for the rest of the year. It's going to, you know, it, that was a really interesting theme coming out of last week, aside from the other stuff we're going to talk about later, Claire. Um, a very good friend of mine, triple vaccinated uh, and ended up very, very, very sick uh, with uh, COVID. Um, so, you know, it is still a danger. It continues to adapt. I think the concern everybody has is whatever variant uh, may eventually be able to get around uh, vaccinations. And as we're seeing, right, outbreaks at schools where we've gone from a handful of incidents to, uh, you know, 100 or more cases. So it's it suggests that it's still a problem, particularly in the United States, where d- despite the magnitude of the problem, only 54 percent of the population is fully vaccinated. I mean, it's it's extraordinary that Japan has surpassed, uh, you know, Europe. Uh, so many countries have surpassed the United States in vaccination. I think United Kingdom is up to, what, 73 percent or more uh, now, yeah. Sash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we're, 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 there's no way that um, the UK is only ranking about sixth in Europe at the moment. You know, there are countries much more comprehensively vaccinated than we are. Um, I've got to say that, I, you know, talking to, um, you know, friends from Italy and so forth, uh, you know, there are astonishing differences in each European country as to, you know, what, where and why the rules are. And here, here in the UK, I mean, it's a very un United Kingdom in terms of, of uh, you know, COVID rules and, and compliance. Uh, so I, I think we're going to get, you know, 
we're going to get a, a series of quite alarming um, spikes and, and so forth this winter, really depending on how different countries uh, manage to, um, you know, manage to keep on vaccinating and manage to keep the thing uh, locked down. Locking down is something very, very hostile to the English government, not so much, you know, if you're in, I mean, in Italy, for example, they have probably the strictest uh, lockdown and passport rules in Europe. Um, I would uh, point out, I think it was amazing that, uh, what is it, in 24 hours after Emmanuel Macron uh, made uh, sort of a vaccination mandate, uh, something like a million people signed up for vaccinations the day after he did that. So, I mean, you can uh, compel uh, folks to do what's in the public interest. I mean, I'm one of the people who believes this isn't a choice question at all. Uh, it's, it's, it, if anything, it's, it's your uh, opportunity to incur and inflict cost and pain uh, and potential uh, tragedy on your other citizens. So I think the f- f- more quickly we get to a full uh, vaccination, the more then herd and all of these other things uh, can uh, take over. Uh, Richard, uh, any any change to any of your air travel uh, bounce back or any other stories? Right, uh, we we had American and JetBlue announce. Uh, a northwest uh, northeast alliance uh, that is getting the ire of some uh, lawmakers. What, what were some of the stories you were tracking uh, this week that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, you know, I mean, first and foremost, let's try to put a positive spin on uh, a, a pretty difficult situation. You know, there is quite a lot of worry about variants beyond Delta and what that will mean for air traffic. But you know, if we had had this conversation over the summer and we did, the narrative was that the U.S. was coming back remarkably fast, just incredible. And the real concern was 2022 and what it would mean because Asia wouldn't be contributing to this comeback because of their rather low vaccination rates. But now, as Sash points out, uh, you know, things are really getting going in the rest of the world and more doses are being contributed by the U.S. and others. And there's a very good chance that unless we have some ruinous new variant, that we're still going to have a fantastic recovery in 2022 because of this, well, I better than expected vaccination rates in outside the U.S. Yes, the U.S. seems to have stalled out this summer. Hopefully mandates can change that, but you just can't tell due to the highly politicized nature of it all. Um, you know, and yeah, throughout the year, you know, you'd had some talk about some kind of alliance between American and JetBlue. And of course, it, it began sometime, memory serves about May, and it's it sort of moved along. It's, you know, it's, it's a far from complete sew up. You know, there's, there's going to be all kinds of complications. And like all kinds of airline alliances, it attracts the IR politicians who think that somehow magically this is going to restore pricing power to the airlines, despite a seemingly inexorable multi-decade slide in yields and fares. I mean, it's really not likely. Um, And of course, this alliance uh, was born of hard times. You know, how do you, well, reinforce each other in in slots that are maybe a bit underutilized? How do you uh, make good slack capacity, whatever else? You know, it it seems fundamentally a decent idea to me. It's it's just that it's it's relatively slow and far from a a complete tie-up. Um, I, I, what I think is fascinating is, right, Southwest and couple, like several airlines. So we have this deal. We have new routes being projected all at the same time where travel is sort of slowing down, right? Isn't that kind of a fascinating dynamic? 
Yeah, it is, you know, and of course, uh, you know, people position themselves for the upturn and it should be a pretty good upturn, you know, but the last time we had uh, a, a devastating airline environment was, of course, after 9-11. And, you know, take you back then, this industry still suffered from massive systemic overcapacity. I mean, you know, six big players, plus Southwest, plus JetBlue, plus whoever else. Now, sometime in the mid 2000s that magically became just three plus Southwest JetBlue and whoever else, Alaska, um, has have fares come up? No, of course they haven't. <laughs> Competition right. is still very much there. The industry's become a lot more rational. Uh, investors have been rewarded and consumers have been rewarded. It's a fairly good scenario. So yeah, I'm not so sure I understand the objections, but uh, on the other hand, you know, it looks a bit strange that people are now positioning themselves for growth after the recovery and even new airlines, you know, Avaleo, Breeze, what have you, formerly Moxie, whatever, being formed. But, but, you know, people see opportunities out there and that's certainly a good thing. Let's go to suppliers, specifically uh, Boeing charges brought against the pilot um, for uh, 737 MAX uh, pilot for having lied to the Federal Aviation Administration, if I got the story uh, correctly. And uh, another uh, story, Wall Street Journal reporting uh, that uh, the new VC-25B, which is uh, a 747-8 that is uh, going to be the foundation for the next uh, Air Force One when the president is on it, of course, Otherwise, it's a VC-25 Bravo. Um, two miniature tequila bottles founded it. Not as bad as ladders or tools or other stuff, but violates the company's policy for not drinking, you know, on a production line, uh, as well as what is considered to be a classified production line. The incident's under investigation. Ron, sort of walk us through uh, what these stories mean, because folks do uh, there was a settlement that was struck by the company and, and the government. It looks like a person is being prosecuted. Is, is that going to be it? Yeah, even though I think it's safe to say that there were more people who were obviously involved in this than a guy misrepresenting things to the Federal Aviation Administration. Yeah, I mean, your I think your sentiment's right on there. I mean, it's it's hard to see how with a company the size of Boeing, with the program as expansive as the 737, that one person's to blame for the whole thing. Um, you know, how far, you know, potential litigation goes or what else happens next. Honestly, your guess is as good as mine. It's, it's hard to, to speculate. Um, you know, Boeing seems to have done a, a, a good job of trying to ring fence this, um, but, but we'll right. see um, ultimately. Yeah. From the tequila bottle. I mean, it's just, it's in some sense, it's, it's, I don't want to say unimaginable, right. Cause you find all kinds of, things on large airplanes um, or they're coming off the production line but it is a classified program um, and you know, it just doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies that you know, Boeing has the proper controls in place right I mean when you think about uh, many of the issues that have happened at the company over the last you know several years a lot of it has to do with controls and reporting and um, you know if, if some folks were having a couple shots of tequila on the airplane, uh, maybe it was the end of a long day. Who knows? Um, Take your damn bottle with you, right? Why would you yeah, leave that on the airplane? Yeah, but I mean, on a, I mean, I would say this, you know, whatever seems kind of harmless, but in the end, you know, it's, it is a production line. It is a classified program and, you know, you, you, you have to take FOD serious. And, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, most airplane companies pride themselves on is 
not having uh, you know foreign objects around that can cause damage at some point. So it, it's just disheartening, right? Because it's just yet another headline that sadly isn't surprising uh, coming from the Boeing company. Um, it's uh, it it truly is. Um... It's just astonishing, especially when you're under such scrutiny anyway. Um, and I should say, right, I mean, these airplanes had been built for um, uh, a Russian oligarch. Like what was there was a story to these, right, um, that these were already there were like white tails, right, that were sort of sitting around for a while. And in order to save money, uh, instead of building them from scratch, uh, those airplanes, right. Am, yep. am I am I right about that? Yep. Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, it was. Um... Transaero, wasn't it? Which is a Russian airline that went bust. That's yeah, it. That's, that's right. it. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, uh, I didn't want to bring oligarchs uh, into it, but it's it's always a fine line uh, in dealing with anything Russian, unfortunately, that uh, may have an oligarch at the bottom uh, of it or at the top of it, as the case may be. Um, anything, uh, Sash or Richard, anything you guys want to add to this uh, storyline before we move on to uh, wait for it, Australian submarines? Go ahead, uh, Sash and Richard. I, I mean, look, I just, I, following on from Ron's, uh, you know, excellent points. If you can get bottles of tequila, empty or awful, onto that aircraft and leave them there, what else is going onto that aircraft and being left there that uh, we don't know about? And from my standpoint, you know, this is just symptomatic of a badly alienated and disgruntled workforce. You know, I mean, does that excuse drinking on the job or whatever? No, but, you know, this and, and for that matter, the pilot thing, I mean, all of this shows... Uh, a, yeah, management that's frankly a bit out of touch with the workers who feel under-resourced and uh, they feel that the management's priorities is, are purely financial. Um, you know, you've been hearing this for years now and what's frustrating is they don't appear to have any initiatives in place to make things better. It's, it seems like something that should be a very high priority for them, but yet you just don't hear any discussion of it and Chicago seems somewhat distant and removed from these concerns. Um, speaking of uh, fi financial, um, Ron, what's the market's reaction been to the new uh, Boeing chief financial officer who just reported board? Yeah, so it's 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 early days, uh, Vago. So I mean, we haven't seen much of a reaction yet um, from from the market. Um, you know, he's been in the seat maybe a month, just just that much. Um, I know they've done some meetings and they've they've met with a with a handful of investors. Um, but I think this would be a, a good topic to revisit after the next quarter results, where we get you know the the, the market gets a you know a, a, a broader meet of the guy, and see where we go from here. Um, you know, it seems like you know he's, you know the current CEO Dave Calhoun knows him well. Um, you know, they both have you know, a GE background, um, so we'll, we'll see how we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, I think it's still early days. Um, what I do think it's interesting is, you know, and I'm sorry for not having mentioned uh, Brian West uh, is is the new uh, CFO. What's interesting and it's going to be interesting to watch is and while it's totally understandable that uh, Dave Calhoun would go to a General Electric alumni, that the sort of GE bloom has sort of come off uh, the rose a little bit. Uh, in, in, in terms of, uh, of, of management, I should say, full disclosure, uh, General Electric Marine uh, sponsored our uh, coverage of the recent Navy League uh, show, but I'm just sort of trying to reflect a market uh, kind of uh, perspective with that. Um, Sash, um, 
let's uh, talk about the submarine uh, contract. Obviously, something where Australia grew uh, frustrated with the Naval Group uh, contract. Uh, as uh, you know, I wrote in in a piece. It was a confluence of um, Australian concerns with China and the importance to uh, not just send a message, but also get better capabilities uh, under its belt. Um, I think people can't o- overestimate how important China is as a, 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 a market. Uh, for Australia. So for them to take this step and draw Beijing's ire was a very, very big step. Um, Talk started in March, uh, involved the United Kingdom, and eventually uh, the US, UK, and Australia uh, struck a broader technology deal and uh, new uh, nuclear-powered attack submarines were part of that. Unfortunately, nobody in this discussion uh, told the French about uh, the fact that uh, its largest ever defense contract was going to be uh, canceled. Uh, and and that, I think, has rightfully drawn France's ire, because anybody who knows France knows that, you know, being made to look stupid uh, is the thing that has a tendency of really upsetting French uh, leaders. There is a sense that this is going to be better for British industry than necessarily it, it is for American industry that is eyes uh, deep in two Virginia class a year and one uh, Columbia a year. That is a massive undertaking that's a strategic modernization for the United States Navy's submarine force at a critical time as the ballistic missile submarine Ohio class runs out of hull life uh, and, and what have you. What, what, are, what are the dynamics associated with this? Because you did spend several days last week at DSCI uh, and certainly have been talking to folks about this deal and, and what does it mean. Talk to us about the deal, what does it mean and why it could be particularly good for British industry because I uh, believe that the astute class is actually the easiest and best answer for the Australians at the end of the day, and that means BAE Systems and Rolls Royce. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so let, let's just put this in, into perspective. When the original Australian submarine deal was signed between Australia and Naval Group of France, it was a forty billion dollar uh, deal plus support which takes you into the 60s or even 70 billion. Um, and at last count, um, you know, the Australian press and the Australian government was talking about this as being a 90 billion Australian dollar deal through the life of the program, 40, 45 years. So. I mean, uh, the French repeatedly refer to this as the deal of the century. It's If it isn't the biggest ever defense export deal, it's pretty close. There may well be a Saudi deal somewhere for a ton of F-15s plus everything else that, that, that runs it very close, but it, it was an enormous uh, deal. I am going to you know, stop you immediately and say the idea that the French did not know that their submarine deal was in trouble is totally and utterly wrong. There is really good evidence throughout the Australian press that the, uh, that the Australian government um, called the French in at you know, presidential level and said, this deal is going so badly, we may have to cancel it. They did it in February 2020. They did it in February 2021. They even did, they were even doing it in 2019. So, you know, this was not a deal that was going well. And then suddenly out of the blue, there is the stab in the back, which is the the narrative coming out of France. I think there's a problem, Uh, which is- The French maintain that they knew that um, they, uh, that the deal had challenges, but that they expected formal word by the end of September uh, from the Australians. And, and they did get it by the end of September. I think that the broader issue is, why didn't we just tell them 
earlier in this process and say, hey, look, this isn't going to work, um, set everything up and, and have some sort of offset for the French in, in this were, as they, well? Because they were, to, they were told in February 2021, uh, if the, you know, the naval group's got to sort stuff out or the deal gets cancelled, you know, the French, the, the Australian defence minister was using the term cancelled, not you know, we are upset or something, you know, slightly more Australian, the deal will be cancelled. I don't see how much clearer you can be. I think that Naval Group passed the message, you know, passed the bad news very, very slowly back to France itself. And there's, there's a very interesting governance issue here. Naval Group, 65% owned by the French government, 35% owned by Talis. Talis, I get the feeling, really can't do anything with Naval Group because they sort of play the government card. But Naval Group always go to the government and say, but we're, we're semi-independent, um, and so, you know, you can't do very much either. I think the governance of Naval Group has been found wanting in this. Their prime contracting has been found wanting. And um, when the Australians decided that they needed a an upgraded capability, nuclear instead of conventional submarines, they didn't look to Naval Group because Naval Group had already spent the previous six years spending money and getting nowhere and letting them down in terms of the things that matter to Australia, which is technology transfer and uh, you know skills development and so forth. So, so what um, have we got? I mean, right. you know, just to, just to sort of wrap this, you know, the Australians have cancelled a submarine program five year, five and a half years in. That's that's big. You don't do that unless you really don't think that it's going to produce something worthwhile. Um, they have asked for a nuclear capability. Australia has no nuclear capability of its own and none that can be developed because there is no nuclear industry in Australia. You know, not very little, but none. They've got no nuclear power stations, got no other nuclear powered ships. So this stuff has to come direct from the UK and the US. And as you rightly point out, US industry is working flat out on Columbia and Virginia. By contrast, the UK industry is coming down, having um, uh, it's in the, so the tail of the Astute program. The Astute program runs another five years, but uh, the first four boats have have, uh, have already been built, and the net, you know, the next two are uh, at a quite an advanced level of building. That actually gives the UK industry the capacity to supply almost certainly the Astute hull, the Astute reactor and systems, and supply that to Australia to put into it. The general, uh, sorry, the Lockheed Martin combat systems and weapons uh, that were going to be uh, required for the uh, the French-built submarines, the attack class, and that's an astonishing turnaround for the UK because you know that gives the UK nuclear naval nuclear industry visibility for the next twenty-five years, and you know ex probably nearly doubles workload for on the nuclear side. That's fantastic, and um, it really does tie uh, the Royal Navy and the Royal Australian Navy. Um, you know, at the hip and pretty much every other part of the body as well, because once once you're sharing a nuclear submarine design, you can't you can't separate that at all easily. And I think the the cross um, crewing of submarines and the cross training that's going to be required is going to be huge, uh, because otherwise, how the Australians come up the learning curve that they need to to actually operate these astonishingly complex boats. Um, how do um, what's the British response been? Because I did speak to some British friends and one of the concerns they had was, you know, at, at the end of the day, there is frustration that Australian industry and we understand the 100 um, percent domestic manufacturer requirement, but that caused serious problems on Collins class. Um, there were times when the Swedes, the Cockham's guys were telling Australians, you know, this is really performance critical. 
we should really supply that. And Australians were adamant, you know, you're going to make this in the, in the, in Australia, uh, stories about ships being built backwards and have to be redone. Uh, that was on the Cavus Ships podcast. That was a participant and Chris Cavus has been tracking some of this. Random, there is a concern that the Australians don't have that maintenance culture. And as two British friends put it, this is going to take a long, this skills are quantum fold more complicated than just operating a submarine. You need to have the maintenance culture that goes with it. You have to make much smarter industrial decisions. Now on this contract, it's 40% supposed to be manufactured in uh, Australia. And as one British friend, uh, government friend put it, you know, we, we've seen how this is played for the Swedes and how this is played for the French. And we're very going to be extremely cautious as we get into this. What were some of the other messaging that you've picked up uh, and then use that as a segue for some broader messages from DSCI, uh, which obviously was 25% uh, smaller, uh, but still, uh, you know, maybe senior officials were a little bit less easy to spot. Um, I'll, I'll let you tell the audience about that, but also what some key takeaways from that show were. Yeah, okay. I, so let, 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 let's wrap on submarines first. <clears throat> I mean, I think that, you know, the, I mean, British, UK industry is stunned by this um, because they didn't expect it to happen this fast. They didn't expect the uh, local content thresholds to be reduced as much as it is, and hence, the likelihood is that you know the the British industry will produce what's effectively an eighth astute submarine. I do wonder whether the seventh astute submarine, which rather embarrassingly is uh, named HMS Agincourt, which is a famous British victory over the French, I wonder if Agincourt will just be diverted to Australia at least for a five-year period, so that the Australians have a nuclear submarine to work up uh, with, and then you know the first Australian boat is is built. Um, uh, behind that. I think that's a very real possibility. Yes, transfer of, of support skills. I'm, I'm not sure about support culture necessarily, but certainly support skills and nuclear support is incredibly difficult. Um, that is going to be hard. And there's certainly a, you know, a little bit of concern. Although I've got to say, you know, people I spoke to last week were, were, were shocked and delighted by this. But, you know, there is a concern that this is actually going to put strains on the, on the UK industry and the UK, Royal Navy because they'll almost certainly lose personnel to Australia. Because frankly, if you're going to maintain submarines at Recife or Devonport or submarines um, in Perth, which, do you, which job do you want? Well, it, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? So um, I suspect that there will be uh, a, a drain of skills that the Royal Navy would rather not have. On the other hand, this actually makes the Royal Navy's nuclear submarine program viable for the next generation. That, that uh, is also a no-brainer. It, it, just to point out really quickly, a Royal uh, Navy uh, friend of mine, uh, his point, um, because I also in my piece recommended Agincourt go over to Australia as, as sort of uh, an important step in this. But one of the concerns that he had is that that means the Royal Navy, which will, you know what I mean? These will be training submarines for a while and will not be in an operational rotation as quickly as the Royal Navy would put them to actually doing real world missions. So his point was, this is sort of a net knock on allied capability if we're diverting boats and slowing things down as opposed to fielding things as quickly as possible to the Royal Navy, which could use them anyway. Okay, my take, my out. take, that is narrow-minded bullshit. Um, when, the, when Saudi Arabia wanted to buy tornadoes, the Royal Air Force was told you will divert two entire squadrons of tornadoes off the production lines. They go to Saudi. We will backfill later, but the national interest and the international interest is that the Saudis get those tornadoes now. Royal Navy will have so you know will have to suck it up. 
you know, if that is the decision made, because the international interest is more important than the Royal Navy worrying about the operational plot. And uh, give us your quick takeaways from uh, DSCI show in person, right? So it's one of the few shows that did not uh, get canceled. We were there in 2019. Unfortunately, we were not there in 2021. Um, any big needle movers from your standpoint, storyline yeah. wise? So, you know, the, I mean, the theme here was definitely unmanned ground vehicles. Uh, everybody had one or two or three of some sort on their stands. Um, and that's looking not just at UK requirements, but a much broader uh, global requirements. Somebody said to me, the lovely thing about unmanned ground vehicles, they don't need a pension and they don't need to be given a sense of military purchase, uh, it's a military purpose either. Um, and I think that pretty much sums up the argument there. Other issues, general dynamics are very tight-lipped about Ajax. Uh, Ministry of Defence officials, when you could find them, very tight-lipped about Ajax in, uh, indeed. Um, so the Ajax armoured vehicle programme I think is going to come to a head probably by the end of this year. And the fact that Ben Wallace has been confirmed in place in role as uh, Defence Secretary after the reshuffle, um, that does not all, all go well for the, um, uh, for the Ajax programme, because uh, that means he's got to finish that particular job. Um, and otherwise, you know, there are ongoing programmes for competitions in helicopters, Navy missiles, UK space, and Babcock got its first contract to export the design of the, the Type 31 frigate. Uh, two ships to, or the design for two ships to Indonesia. So there was a lot more going on than I expected. It was a really good show, actually. And frankly, you know, I like defence shows. It was great to be back meeting meeting people. Uh, and and that is uh, truly one of the best shows uh, in in the world, uh, in 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 my uh, experience. Richard, um, you've been very, very patient, and I know you want to weigh in uh, on this as well. What are some of your thoughts? And more broadly, what are some lessons uh, that France should be taking from this? I understand being very, very upset. Uh, and I think that uh, Emmanuel Macron and his team uh, did a magnificent job, um, you know, keeping this uh, contract alive. But in the past, we have seen contracts like this run uh, French big French wins run afoul of a reluctance sometimes by French industry to um, export uh, technology and, and transfer technology, in part because France takes very seriously whether the product at the end of the day will work and whether or not it'll be a negative reflection on them. We saw, for example, uh, the uh, Rafale order to India be truncated into uh, two dozen nuclear uh, Rafales instead of a, a, a broader order. Obviously, that uh, competition is going to reconstitute itself. What are some of the takeaways from from your standpoint uh, from this uh, submarine deal? And Sash, what I was going to say is hell of a promotion for Liz Truss, by the way, as as uh, foreign uh, secretary to replace Dominic Raab. But but that's a, another uh, issue. Go ahead, uh, Richard. Yeah, you know, I thought it was an utterly fascinating development on many different levels. First, let me echo Sash. You know, I mean, the French are shocked. I mean, come on. Not only were the, you know, the, not only were the large capital letters spray painted on the wall, but, you know, doesn't it kind of echo what happened around uh, six or seven years ago when the French unexpectedly took the contract away from the Japanese? I mean, it almost seems kind of familiar. Uh, this development. And, you know, finally, I'll, I'll echo uh, a sentiment that I, I think was uh, best said in a column in Foreign Policy magazine, which, which was, they're not disagreeing with strategy, they're just annoyed about the money. And there's something a little unseemly about that, quite frankly. Uh, now, in terms of big read-throughs, uh, first and foremost, um, the higher up you go in terms of defense exports, the more likely it is that 
you're not just selling a product, you're selling a strategic relationship. In addition to the technology transfer that you correctly uh, highlight, yes, that is an issue uh, with the French and that was a major concern, but it's also a strategic relationship. And the OSOC, or however we pronounce this now, strategic relationship awk, reflects awk, the awkwardly, fact- Awkwardly, awkwardly named awkwardly, AUKUS. <laughs> AUKUS. AUK, yes, indeed. Um, and all of this sort of you know, reflects a, a reality that the U.S. and the U.K. have been the most aggressive non-Australasian powers, if you will, in basically having a presence over there. And that's hugely important in terms of interoperability, in terms of training, and in terms of, of well, everything that comes with a strategic relationship. So the idea that you know France would bat, lag badly behind these other two powers and not see some kind of geopolitical consequences in terms of arms sales to the region. That is just, I, the French have done really well when they understand a strategic relationship. One reason for the rather impressive wins in Egypt and Greece with Rafael sales has been very clearly their policies in the Eastern Mediterranean and in Libya and elsewhere. They know that this all comes together. You show the flag, you have a presence and you, well, you cooperate and you get rewarded with arms sales. And it's exactly the same here with AUKUS or however we're pronounced, Os OSALC or whatever. It's exactly the same thing. The French should have known. Uh, huh. Now, the only, the only other thing I, I, maybe it's not such a great development for air power, but you know, the Australians have always had the great challenge of how to provide maritime strategic depth, defense in depth, given the distance between them and likely ad the likely adversary. And, you know, I think a lot of attention had been focused about, you know, how do they replicate the amazing capability they once had the F-111, the only export operator of the F-111. You know, would it be tactical air power working with hypersonic missiles? A lot of focus on hypersonic missiles. Uh, it was always air power, you know, F-35s. Would they be a customer for NGAD? At one point, they were rumored to be a customer for hand-me-down B-1 bombers, and then maybe even B-21s, you know, but so much of their defense budget is going to be diverted to submarines. And I don't second-guess that, you know, nuclear submarines are a terrific way to provide that maritime defense in depth. I don't second-guess it at all. It's just not really great news from an air power market standpoint. Of course, there were the two uh, 27,000 ton big deck amphibious ships that Aust uh, Australia acquired from Navantia, which are highly uh, capable ships and expands the discussion whether or not the F-35 Bravo uh, is going to be acquired by the Royal Australian Air Force, given that 100 uh, F-35As are on order. Uh, I should point out that as a demonstration uh, of, of global power, uh, the United uh, Kingdom uh, deserves great marks for not just sticking with and developing the two Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers, but actually HMS Queen Elizabeth, the namesake of the class, uh, is in the Pacific with the largest ever stealth fighter uh, deployment at sea uh, with a joint force of U.S. Marine Corps as well as joint force uh, F-35 uh, aircraft that are operating off uh, the ship's deck with a very uh, multinational blend of exercises as it's gone all around the world and, and certainly operating now in the Pacific. Uh, very uh, quickly, um, Ron, uh, I think you answered this question uh, earlier, but um, you, you also think that the market's consensus is that there's not much in th this contract for 
Huntington Ingalls uh, and uh, Electric Boat, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it looks like, and I should point out, Huntington Ingalls sponsored our coverage of uh, Navy League as well, um, that there could be engineering services the companies provide, uh, both very skilled in working with allied and partner submarine forces uh, for decades, but that the role may be a little bit less uh, forward. Is is that uh, just anything to add to that before we wrap that up and go? Quickly yeah, I think you know, that AFA? was that was on the you know in the forefront of the, some investors' minds was you know, you know how would this work be done? You know, would there, you know how much would be done in country, so on and so forth. How would this the industrial base support it. So uh, my sense is kind of, you know, at a, at a minimum, investors are thinking about this. This, this, is, this is something that even if you were to think that this could impact the U.S. You know, suppliers materially, it's something that's good, it's way out in the future, right? And there's, and there's uncertainty around it. Um, and then, like, as we've discussed here, that if you peel back the onion, in fact, there might not be that much meat on the bones for the U.S. Um, uh, suppliers. So, yeah, I, I think that's where the, the market's mind is. And uh, I know you cover B, uh, BWXT as, as well, right? They're pretty maxed out when it comes to reactors and um, missile tube work as well, right? It's not like they've got a lot of bandwidth either. So if you, yeah, if you look at BWXT, um, you know, how maxed out they are actually, I believe it's classified, right? So right, um, they, right. They, haven't, they haven't talked a lot about that, but they're busy. They're very, very busy. Um, and the missile tube work, uh, I think they still have some remaining missile tube work, but um, a lot of that work, um, they um, you know, have sold off to somebody else. Um, and so, you know, you know, is there, can the U.S. supply chain, can we supply modified Virginia class submarines in a time frame that would be acceptable, and I don't think you disagree with this. Probably not, right? So it's right. it's kind of defaulting to all right. You know what would be done in country, and then um, I guess an interesting question would be, and maybe maybe you have a view on this. Um, when you think about the power plant, would they be using kind of the uh, uh, the British power plant, which I do believe is a derivative of a BWXT, BWXT it, design? It, it is. Right? It's a derivative of the S five yeah. uh, W, the Westinghouse S five W that was covered in the nineteen fifty eight uh, US UK um, defense treaty. So, right. so if they wanted to do maybe something more updated, clearly, they, maybe they do something with BWXT. So it's kind of my my humble view is probably in the US among the US suppliers BWX is probably have the most to gain, honestly, um, but, but we'll see. You know, and, and, and for Lockheed, actually, it's potentially a net loss because uh, they were going to do 12 uh, of the attack class and they're going to do uh, eight, uh, even though that's not decided, right? I mean, the next 18 months is going to decide that, but there is a sense that the busy one combat system, the Mark 48 ad cap torpedo, uh, busy one, obviously, by Lockheed yeah. Martin. Mark now, one, one, point, one point I want to make, and um, I'll give you know, Richard credit for kind of uh, pointing to this, you know, from a historical perspective, um, and, and maybe I'll just bring this up and you can pivot to Richard because this is you know, his thought. Um, there's aspects of this that are similar to sort of the ill-fated um, Canadian class submarine, right? Um, so yeah, Richard, if you want to comment on that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. Back in the 80s, uh, Canada had exactly the same fear of a, well, confrontation with the distant power, this time in the Arctic. So they decided to create the Canada-class submarine, which was going to be nuclear-powered. The difference here is that um, 
this agreement with Australia allows for the necessary technology transfer sub for submarine propulsion. The Canadians didn't line that up, and the U.S. basically said no. But the other thing that was in play was there were the broad fears in Canada that all necessary defense resources would be dragged away from air power, land power, whatever else, and towards the submarines. And I think that that issue could uh, very much be in play here in Australia. Um, and uh, we can all agree that uh, the upholder, uh, which should have been the world's finest diesel electric submarine and the last diesel electric submarine in Royal Navy service was actually uh, anything uh, but, and then they sat around for many years and the, the Canadians finally bought them and it was uh, a very, very tough uh, job uh, to, to get them uh, back uh, into service. I will point out that a derivative of the S5W is the PWR, Pressurized Water Reactor 2 that Rolls-Royce uh, builds. And, and I think, you know, I, look, I, I, if you're going to do an ambitious program and do it fast, adopt the astute design, it's worked, it's debugged. Uh, and that's the most economic way of doing it. And don't change the power plant and don't change uh, anything more than you uh, definitely need to change uh, on, on that. Uh, very and quickly, Gago, 30... if I may, uh, this is also a great time to throw in a plug for your superb piece on, uh, well, the whole oh, the question of which submarines and what submarines that uh, that you wrote is a, uh, a hot take. That's one of those rare hot takes that really looks great in, uh, in the rearview mirror. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you very, very much. Uh, I, I appreciate that very <laughs> yeah, quickly. Bra bra bravo, Zulu. Bravo, Zulu. Thank you very much. I will take that, especially from such tough, tough judges as, as you. The audience should know that when I do say something stupid, uh, this gang really does land on me and is like, what are you, stoned? Um, very quickly, 30 seconds. Um, uh, uh, Richard, what are you expecting to hear from AFA this year? Any big storylines uh, that you're tracking? Well, you know, I think more and more about the challenges of the Pacific, which means not just B-21, but also NGAD. Of course, we're going to be talking about the bridge tanker and whether or not it leads to conceivably something more elaborate after that, even a stealth tanker under KCZ. It's all about you know, range and new technology. That's not to say the F-35 will be neglected, but on the other hand, uh, it, attention is clearly focused now on the new generation of systems. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you guys on. Hope you guys have uh, a great day, a great week, and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Thanks for, for having us. Yeah, thanks again, Vago. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.